Welcome. Glad to have all of you here. It's a beautiful day, and we have, as Hal said, Freddie is going to speak to us, give us the the message as we proceed. But as we begin, let's take a few seconds of spiritual preparation. And, of course, our spiritual preparation means as believers of we have the opportunity to confess our sins and also to focus, to focus on the message, various parts of the worship. And so let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and you will have the opportunity for privacy to prepare yourself for our service. Dearly Father, we're thankful that you are our God. We often forget that there is only one God, and you have given us life, and you love us, and we're thankful for your remarkable character. We ask for your blessing upon our our message and our service today. We ask that we're focused on you We're focused on your word, and we are thankful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, simply by believing in his work on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our service this morning, what I like to do, well, the day's moving fast, what I like to do is begin with call to worship. And here we have our service reading, which is from Psalm. I love Psalm. And there's some lengthy Psalms. They're short. But there's also parts of the Psalms of a chapter that is very meaning. So let's turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 We could start at the beginning, but we're simply going to start at verse 5, 5 through 9. This is a tribute to David, and David wrote many psalms, and there are others who wrote psalms also. But David was going through some exceedingly difficult times, but he was also blessed And so as we read Psalm 36, beginning in verse 9, we read, Your mercy, O Lord. And it's always important for us to understand the pronouns. And so yours, of course, it helps us here when it says, O Lord. But you, your mercy, your chesed, which is the Hebrew word, but it's his unfailing love. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. One of the reasons that David writes this way is because these, the figures of speeches, they help us to understand who God is because we really can't understand God. Uh, he is beyond everything that we understand. And so David says, Your mercy, your 
unfailing love is in the heavens. It's beyond us. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. You probably say, well, we can reach the clouds. But, of course, when David is writing this, it was beyond them at the time. Verse 6, your righteousness is like the great mountains, meaning it is, as we stand and we look at these mountains, we're stunned by them. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgment, a great deep, speaking of the water, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. In other words, what he's saying here is there are no species that has that is beyond God's knowledge. And every now and then we'll say we find something new, or there's we're un, we don't know exactly what this species is. Well, God knows it. How does He know it? He created it. He is the Creator. And so this is David speaking to them. You preserve man and beast, both us and the beasts that he made, the animals. Verse 7, how precious is your loving kind, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. And the trust here is the we would say they are creatures that are under his his the refuge we would say the shadow of your wings your protection eight they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house the house here for david would be the tabernacle the temple for us we would say a place of worship this is where we are is where we worship. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. The drinks here are the refreshment, the refreshment that we receive from God. So you give them drink, refreshment from the river of your pleasures. In other words, his delightments, the word for to refreshment to us. Verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. And this is the source of life for us, the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And your light is your truth. And it is the life that brings us. So this is just a few verses, but it describes for us who God is. And what he's done for us, what he is doing for us, and what is coming to us to understand more about him. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the word of God that tells us more about you. So that even though during difficult times, we should have the understanding that you are our God. You are providing for us. And we do our best to continue to understand the truth that he tells us. And he continues to protect us and provision for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, we also, at this time, 
give us the opportunity for the offering. And the Apostle Paul tells us that each one of you should give, just as he has decided in your heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver, or we would say willing or a gracious giver. And again, let me just thank God for the offering. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have provided for us. We're not counting how much, but the willingness, the graciousness that we give. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we have, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brethren. National Capital Bible Church, it's a joy to be here this morning and uh, to be able to deliver the message. In California, there's a saying, a church alive is worth the drive. So National Capital Bible Church is a church alive that is worth the drive. So you have a wonderful church here. And I am privileged to be a part of this uh, ministry. And I'd like to introduce my two friends as well, Alvin and Daisy, who is joining us today. And they, too, are believers in Christ. And I'm excited that they're here with us so that we can engage in the Word. But before we get into the Word of God this afternoon, a few verses I I usually like to share that shows the simplicity of the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. If you don't mind, I'd like to take a moment of silence one more time to exercise the rebound technique. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So perchance on the way up here you had a mental thought or a verbal, you said something that was off. It gives us the opportunity to make our peace with God. So let's just pause for a moment of silence and then I will pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to assemble together with the royal family of God. And, Father, we are here because of you. And we are grateful for the grace that has been extended to us as believers in Christ. The message this afternoon, I trust, will um, encourage those who are here, those online or those who are going to listen to this later on, as we discover the intricacies of the relationship between the believer and your son, Jesus Christ. Help us now, Father, through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the empowering ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to understand these truths as he illuminates them as we engage in the word. And we ask and pray all of these things in Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen. Okay. 
So this is going to be, we're going to look at a passage that we're all familiar with, I'm sure. We're going to look at John chapter 15, uh, 1 through 8. And when you look at the passage, it breaks down into three sections. There are 27, well, we're going to, there's 27 verses that break down into verses 1 through 8, 11 through 17, and 18 through 27. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you'll notice on the slides, verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus speaks of the believer's relationship to himself. And as you move along from 11 to 17, the arrows go outwards now. Instead of the arrows pointing inwards to Christ, the arrows are shooting outwards from the believer. And now he speaks about the relationship to one another as the family of God. And then 18 to 27 expands outside of the circle of the family. And he now addresses the relationship to the world. So first, 1 through 8, he speaks of the relationship to himself. And I would even say, if you're familiar with this doctrine, verses 1 through 17 relates to our royal priesthood, the royal priesthood. So how you stand with your relationship with God the Father will influence how you respond to the believers around you, as well as the believers outside of the family of God. So your royal priesthood will influence your ambassadorship, in 18 to 27, and your love for the brethren in 11 through 17. But we're going to focus primarily on 1 through 8 this morning. So he starts off, Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. We have here the seventh and last of the ego eimi statements or sayings. He says it seven times. This is the seventh and the last time in the Gospel of John, Ego Emi, I am. And he identifies himself as the true vine, as highlighted in red. I am the true vine. And his father is the vine dresser or the gardener. So the purpose of symbolic Teachings or metaphors such as found here is to represent an abstract truth by pictorial illustration. In the culture in which they were living, truth, the idea and the image were closely associated. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as metaphorically as a vine. You find this in, for example, Psalms chapter 80 verse 8, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. The idea that Israel is the vine. Uh, the nation was intended to be like a productive vine that bears much fruit. Instead, it was like an unproductive, fruitless vine, as we discover, as you read in the Old Testament. Back up here. There's one more comment here on this true vine. Jesus Christ is the vine, and the point that will be made is that the branches cannot produce apart from the union with the vine. We'll see this more later on. The word true means genuine and points to Christ as the only source of the fruit. 
the father is the vine dresser, Geragos, and the father and the son are seen in the context of cooperation. You see the father as the vine dresser and Jesus Christ as the vine. So there's a uh, cooperation with the, between the father and the son in terms of uh, encouraging fruit bearing. In verse 2, we have something interesting. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may what? Bear more fruit. So whether you're fruit bearing or not, uh, he wants production. The idea here is he's going to encourage the believers to be productive. So... The gardener, the father, desires fruit, which is mentioned several times in this chapter. You find it in chapter, uh, verse 2, 4, 5, and 8 of chapter 15, as well as verse 16. And you'll notice a progression. It's seen here in verses 5 and 8. Much more fruit. <clears throat> the fruit which God desired from Israel in, in the Old Testament was obedience, righteousness, and justice. You find this in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And they blew it. They bombed it. Now, before we move on, something worth pointing out here is some theologians do not believe that there's such thing as an unproductive believer. What do I mean by that? They'll look at you and say, well, Bill, uh, you know what? You're, you're not, you weren't here last Sunday, so you're probably backsliding or you're probably not a real believer. David, you know what? You, you, you smile a lot. You're, you're too happy. You're, you're worldly. So they will conclude, based on what they see, that you're not a productive believer or you're not a saved individual. Have you heard of things like that before? If you don't have a changed life, you're not really saved? Well, notice the preposition here before me, in Every branch what? In me. So that's relational. That's a positional truth term. In Christ. In fact, what I've been teaching for the past year now is that when we share the gospel, um, we're trying to get people out of Adam and into Christ. Because when a person is born right now, every child, every baby that's born, they're in Adam they have the sin nature. And so what we're trying to do when we share the gospel is we want them to come to faith by believing in Jesus Christ, but that's so that they can be in Christ. You see the verse here? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So I just wanted to highlight this because there's some theologians, and I'll comment on this a little bit more later on, that believe that there's no such thing as an unproductive believer. Once once you have been born from above, you're a new creation in Christ, you must change. You must bear fruit. you got to stop cussing. You can't lust anymore. You can't drink anymore because you're a new creation in Christ. So they say all of these things and they'll look at verses like this to point to drive their point home. But notice what it's saying here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. 
So here's a relational term in, the preposition in, in who? Christ. So there are branches in Christ that are not being productive. Can all of you honestly say that you're always living for Christ? When you go to work, are you always representing Christ? Whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think. Are you consistently being productive for Christ? Well, if not, some churches will say, well, then you've proven that you've never really been saved. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Yet it is difficult to imagine how an unbeliever could be rightly called a branch in me. It's unheard of. Unbelievers are never in Christ. So every branch in me. This can't refer to an unbeliever. The issue with unbelievers is unbelief, not production. Unbelief, not production, not lack of fruitfulness. Unbelievers are not in Christ and they are not branches from which he expects fruit. Only the believer is. Notice what he says here. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Katheros is the word for clean. You, disciples, are katheros. You are clean because of what? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. So the reason the disciples were already clean was because of the word that Jesus spoke to them. They had believed in his promise that all who believe in him have everlasting life. You find this in two, chapter 2, verse 11, the beginning of the Simeon, the signs, the miracles. Uh, 2.11, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. John 11.25-27, to 27. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So you have verses like this sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John, thus showing that the disciples who were being mentored by Jesus Christ for the three and a half year circuit training uh, responded to Christ. And you find this also in John 13, where he talks about how all are clean except one. That's right. Who was the one that was unclean? Judas. It wasn't Scott? (laughs) Judas. Judas was the one who was unclean. So, Katheros, you are already clean because of the word. Notice, too, that it's the word that provided the purifying and cleansing effect, which is why we should always be grounded in Bible doctrine. We should stay with his word. Romans 12, 2, you should know it. Don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform is metamorpho. It's in the passive voice. What does that mean? It's something that happens to you. You don't have to try to change It's something that is the direct consequence to the renewing of the mind. So as we stick with Bible doctrine, as we get into His Word, 
we're slowly conformed into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to try to be a Christian. Some people say, oh, you know what, I can't do this Christian thing. It's too hard. No, it's not. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't live the Christian life. It's impossible. You're supposed to renew your mind. That's the key. So this is rich and loaded with with some principles here, brethren. You are already catharsis because of the Word. You're clean because of the Word, not because you did something. It was because of the Word which I have spoken to you. And then he continues and he says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot, what? Bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you, disciples, abide in me. Now, this word abide comes from the Greek word meno. It's what's called the, in the imperative mood. You guys know what imperative is, right? It's a command. So if this is a command, what can we conclude based on verse 4? If he commands you to abide, what does that imply? Hmm? You can do that all day? (laughs) If he's commanding us to abide, which means remain, live, or dwell. And I'll expand on that in just a moment. But think about this. It's very important. If Jesus is telling his disciples to stay in me, abide in me, remain in me, in his words, then if that's a command, what does that suggest? That maybe we don't? Maybe we don't abide? Is that fair? We're not always abiding. We're not always abiding in his word. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Here it is used to refer to living in the sphere of the true vine, which is Jesus. To abide in Christ is to abide in his words. To remember and to live by what he has said, like in 538, 831 and 15.7. Jesus promises that he will abide and I will abide in you, in the believer who abides in him. So there's this going back and forth. If we abide in his words, we take in his word, we fellowship in the word, he will abide in us. Now this does not take away or detract from the indwelling ministry of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. This is talking about fellowship. These are fellowship terms now. Abiding. Paul uses fellowship, the word fellowship, and Jesus here is using the word abide, remaining, dwelling in me. So it's taking in his word, cooperating with his word, listening to what he has said. So there is no guarantee, as I mentioned in scripture, that believers who are positionally clean will abide, which is why it's in the imperative mood. If, if it comes natural, then he wouldn't have to command us. I just said, oh, I'm just abiding. How are you doing, Freddie? Oh, I'm abiding, just doing what I normally do. It doesn't come that easily. It's not easy at all. It takes discipline. It takes a, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys are, drink wine or alcohol, do you? 
You do? Oh, you guys. Oh, yeah, you got a lot of heads like this. It's kind of like the first time I drank wine. You don't, you don't like it the first time you drink it. It kind of has that funky taste. It just doesn't taste right. But after you, you drink it several times because you want to look cool with the rest of the people, right? So you drink it more. And then eventually it becomes an acquired taste. It's the same thing here. We have to acquire it. We have to abide in His Word. It doesn't come natural. That's why it's in the imperative mood. God, Jesus knew that we weren't going to do this regularly. But He commanded the disciples who then transferred it to us so that we would have this meaningful text here. Abide in me. Stay in me. Remain in me. Listen to Him. But there's no guarantee that we would, which is why it's in the imperative mood. He goes on and he says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears what? Much fruit. So if you want to be productive, here's the key. It's abiding in him. Not trying. Because I tell you what, I don't go home and say, I can't wait to read the Bible. Oh, I just can't wait to read the Bible and open all my textbooks to to get to find out what the Word says. No, it, it's something that requires discipline. And you do it regularly, just like wine and alcohol. It becomes an acquired taste and it becomes an acquired discipline. But it doesn't come easily, which is why it's important to look closely at the verses that's in front of us so that we can understand what the text is saying. So in here, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nada. You can do nothing. Now, <clears throat> for, for without me you can do nothing must be understood in light of verse 4. It doesn't mean you, the non-abiding believers are incapable of doing anything at all. The idea is doing things that please God. So, there's a diagram that I'd like to show you in just a moment. When a believer lives in the sphere of the flesh, he can do nothing that pleases God. However, believers have God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, within them. And when they live in light of their born-again status, they produce good fruit that pleases the Lord Jesus. And this is called walking by means of the Spirit. So for this, I'd like to show you a diagram that I frequently use back home in California. Here you are, you're a believer in Christ, and you have two, two warring entities inside you. On the right side, you have the dark circle. On the left side, you have the kind of light grayish circle. The right circle there, or the left circle, is the new man. When you are born again, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the new nature, also known as the, as the human spirit. This is where you never sin. This is where the indwelling of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit takes place. They indwell in the human spirit. And on the right side is the old man. This is what kicks our butt every so often. You, the sin nature, tendency to sin. David, do you still sin? A lot or a little? A lot? Well, it's coming from the right circle. When we sin, it's always coming from the old sin nature. 
On the other hand, the circle on the left is the new man. This is the new you. Have you ever struggled and said, you know, I know I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't talk like that. That's the new you. So, having said that, the right side, this is where sin originates from the sin nature. On the left side, you never sin. The new man, the new you never sins at all. Let's say I commit a sin today. Where is it coming from? The left side or the right side? The right side. Why? Because the circle on the left is the new me. It never is a reflection. When I sin, it's never the byproduct of the new nature. Sin is the byproduct of the old man. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to abide consistently in the Word so that the new man can offset the old man. Which is why Romans 12.2 comes to mind again. Don't be like the old man, the, the world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That word metamorpho is the word that's used for metamorphosis, which is when a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. That's a radical transformation. So for the believer, we are trying to be metamorpho, but that's going to come through a consistent intake and application of Bible doctrine. So I, I like to say it like this, and I, it's like a broken record. Usually back home, um, I like to go for about an hour. An hour a Sunday. Is that how, you, how long you go, Dan? Okay, about an hour. An hour a Sunday. How many Sundays in a month? Four, right? Four Sunday, four Sundays a month. That's four hours a month that you've taken in the Word. Over a year, twelve times four is how many? How much? How many days is that? That's not a lot of time. You've studied two days. Congratulations. No wonder why you're struggling. So we have to augment and supplement our studies, not only in Bible class, not only in church, but regularly abiding in His Word. Because when we do, we'll be productive with our fruit bearing. And we will have a changed life. So if you want a copy of the slide, I'm selling them at a discount for National Capital. I will send it to you if you are interested. Now we're at verse 6. I want to show you something here. This uh, Hopefully none of you are using the John MacArthur study Bible. David? Okay, good. No more? Okay, well, look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire so they can go to hell, right? And they are burned. Here on the bottom... I took this out of J. Mac's study Bible, John MacArthur's study Bible. He says, in reference to this verse, the imagery here is one of destruction. It pictures the judgment awaiting all those who were never saved. Really? So he takes this to mean that the people here are going to be destroyed because they were never really saved. Remember what I was saying earlier about how the change behavior, 
I don't see a change in your life, so you're probably not really saved. Well, there's only three views for this passage here. There's only three ways to understand this. Is this a loss of salvation for believers who fail to abide? Does that does that match what we know to be true in Scripture as far as eternal security? How about the professing believer not possessing everlasting life? Sometimes, oft, sometimes said they had a head faith but not a heart faith. They miss God by 12 inches. That's baloney too. Uh, so what's the third view? What if they were just believers? Believers who were unfruitful. Is that a possibility? Of course. I take this to mean the third view, uh, which is the believers who are in an unfruitful state over time will experience God's temporal judgment, possibly culminating in the premature death called the sin unto death which is found in 1 John 5.16. The third view alone upholds eternal security and it fits the particulars of the passage and is consistent with the rest of scriptures. So when you read the being cast out as a branch and burn, it refers to a common practice of verticulture in which unproductive branches are cut off and burned. Its application to unproductive believers is easily seen. God disciplines those who persist in disobedience. Fire is a common metaphor in Scripture for temporal judgment. Something worth pointing out as well. I don't know if this... I still have to think this one through. But notice the word here. What does it say? They, are, they throw them into the fire and they are what? Why doesn't, why doesn't it say burned up? If this was hell... I would think that Jesus would use a different word here. Why not use the word burned up? Burned, I mean, if I, if I touch this and it's hot, I got burned. But there's no ongoing suffering with that. Jesus is quick to point out that he used the word, or the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the word that Jesus used here was burned. It's temporal. So again, that lines up with temporal judgment. Instead of saying burned up, it's the word burned. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Here is the answer to prayer. These verses expand on to abide in Christ and to have his words abide in you. These verses show us the condition to answered prayer. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So if you abide in him, you remain in his words and his words abide in you, that's the time that you can ask for what you desire and it shall be done for you. And when you connect that with verse 8, which needs to be added because it won't make sense, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and demonstrate that you are my disciples. 
The more useful you become to God and His plan, the more glory God will receive and the more people will recognize you as a serious believer or even a disciple rather than just a casual believer. The Lord wants disciples, not just mere churchgoers. In contrast with verse 6, the emphasis on these verses is positive. Remain with Jesus, bear much fruit, and effective prayer is based on faith in Christ and His words remaining in the believers. Christ's words should condition and influence a believer's mind so that his prayers conform to the Father's will. Since his prayer is in accord with God's will, the results are certain. It will give, it will be given to you. Fulfilled prayers bring glory to the Father because like Jesus, his disciples are doing the Father's will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, prayers get answered when we maintain intimate fellowship with God through his word. That's because you'll find your will is aligning ultimately with his. So, any thoughts, comments, or questions? If you have any questions, I'll just turn it over to Scott. But that's all I have for this afternoon, this morning. Dan, you got me on a roll now. Now I'm saying this afternoon. So, um, but shall we close in a word of prayer? Father, thank you as always for allowing us the opportunity to examine your word. And Father, we are reminded of how important it is to abide in you. It is possible to not abide. And so I pray that every royal priest in this congregation would consistently abide in you and your word. In the end, this will translate into giving you the glory. By bearing much fruit, we give you the glory, and you are honored and glorified. We thank you, Father, for this time, and I pray for the National Capital Bible Church that it would continue to be a beacon of light in this central location here, rendering honor and glory to you alone because you deserve it. Thank you for hearing us, and we ask these things in Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen.